<clears throat> uh, today is Sunday, July 12th, 2020, here in the first few months of our pandemic. And uh, I've noticed, maybe you have too, uh, we seem to be undergoing a real uptick in impatience uh, in this country, uh, throughout the world probably, and uh, certainly within our own hearts. There's just so much to get upset about. We're living, we're living in uh, this age of instant gratification. We're just used to uh, getting our needs met as soon as they occur to us. Um, and we're living in a sort of fire hose of information. There's so much uh, that we can know about because of the internet and because we've got our smartphone and computer and uh, tuned in to everything that's going on and reacting to it. And so uh, we're kind of witnessing the dumpster fire of America's response to COVID-19. There's a uh, article I thought I'd read <clears throat> before I get into what I really want to talk about, and uh, that's patience, the uh, one of the, the uh, perfections, the patience paramita. But let me just read a little bit from an article by uh, Paul Krugman. Uh, it was published in the New York Times on June 9th, entitled "America Fails the Marshmallow Test." And he says, <clears throat> the marshmallow test is a famous psychological experiment that tests children's willingness to delay gratification. Children are offered a marshmallow, but told that they can have a second marshmallow if they're willing to wait 15 minutes before eating the first one. <clears throat> Claims that children with willpower to hold out to do much better later in life haven't actually helped, held up well, but the experiment is still a useful metaphor for many choices in life, both by individuals and by larger groups. And he says, one way to think about the COVID-19 pandemic is that it poses a kind of marshmallow test for society. <clears throat> At this point, there have been enough international success stories in dealing with the coronavirus to leave us with a clear sense of what beating the pandemic takes. First, you have to impose strict social distancing long enough to reduce the number of infected people to a small fraction of the population. Then you have to implement a regime of testing, tracing, and isolating, quickly identifying any new outbreak, finding everyone exposed, and quarantining them until the danger is passed. This strategy is workable. South Korea has done it. New Zealand has done it. It's just uh, Skyping with Amala Sensei, and uh, Richard came in. He'd just been to the grocery store, maskless. Um, they're, they're not in lockdown in any way, shape, or form because there's almost no positive cases there. And if there are, they know what to do. He, says, he goes on and says, you have to be strict and you have to be patient. 
staying the course until the pandemic is over, not giving in to the temptation to return to normal life while the virus is still widespread. So it is, as I said, a kind of marshmallow test, and America is failing that test. <clears throat> Skipping over a little bit, says, why are we failing the test? It's easy to blame Donald Trump, a man-child who would surely gobble down that first marshmallow, then try to steal marshmallows from other kids. But America's impatience, its unwillingness to do what it takes to deal with a threat that can't be beaten with threats of violence, runs much deeper than one man. And I think I'll leave it at that, at that. It's dismaying to see how uh, <clears throat> our inability to be patient is sabotaging us. But if we look out at Donald Trump and his cohorts and all the angry people on both sides, uh, we're missing the fact that this is our problem, this, this disease of impatience, this looking for easy answers. And so I'm going to talk today about one of the six paramitas. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with traditional Buddhist teaching, uh, sometime <clears throat> after the development of the Mahayana, uh, they came up with these six perfections, uh, as they're called. Uh, just to go through them really quickly, uh, the first is uh, morality. Uh, see if I can bring them all to mind here. Excuse me. The first is generosity. Uh, the second is morality. The third is patience. The fourth is energy or vigor. The fifth is samadhi or dhyana, absorption. Actually, dhyana is a Sanskrit word which is identical to uh, Japanese Zen and Chinese Chan, just different pronunciations. And then the sixth paramita is prajna or wisdom, awakening. So we're going to talk today about the third paramita. In, in Sanskrit, the term is kshanti, K-S-H-A-N-T-I. And it's sometimes translated as patience, sometimes as forbearance. And we're going to see if we can sort of unpack some of that and, and take a look at it and see how it affects our lives and our practice. I'm going to uh, be reading from an article uh, by Pema Chodron. Uh, I used it a little bit in a talk I gave, a Zoom talk, <clears throat> uh, for the Louisville Sangha in early May, but I don't think I got too deeply into it. and. Even if I did, most of you didn't hear that. And there's an awful lot that uh, is in here. I really um, think that Pema Chodron has done a great job of, uh, of talking in practical ways about how patience and anger, impatience, play out. So as I say, this article was, uh, the title is The Answer to Anger and Aggression is Patience, and it was published in Lion's Roar, uh, March 1st, 2005. 
Um, for those who don't know her, Pema Chodron is a teacher in the Vajrayana school. Uh, her teacher was uh, named Trungpa, uh, <clears throat> somewhat controversial, and uh, there's been a lot of sexual misconduct um, in, in that school, as in Zen and Christianity and Hinduism and any religion you can think of. But uh, Pema Chodron herself seems to be a pretty, uh, pretty upright person and willing to admit her own failings. And uh, one of those was a failure to call out bad behavior on the part of other people she was teaching with. <clears throat> but that being said, uh, turn to her. And she says, the Buddhist teachings tell us that patience is the antidote to anger and aggression. When we feel aggression in all its many forms, resentment, bitterness, being critical, complaining, and so forth, could probably add hardening and fear to that. We can apply the different practices we've been given and all the good advice we've heard and given to other people, but those often don't seem to help us. That's why this teaching about patience caught my interest a few years ago because it's so hard to know what to do when one feels anger and aggression. I thought, if patience is the antidote to aggression, maybe I'll just try that. In the process, I learned a lot about what patience is and about what it isn't. I would like to share with you what I've learned to encourage you to find out for yourself how patience works with aggression. <clears throat> so she says, to begin with, I learned about patience and the cessation of suffering. <clears throat> it's said that patience is a way to de-escalate aggression. I'm thinking here of aggression as synonymous with pain. Um, Certainly they're, they're closely related, and when you're feeling pain, you have feelings of clamping down, feelings of hardening, uh, feelings of desperation, and it can easily turn to aggression against others. Um, so we'll go with her term. Uh, she seems to relate very well to uh, this term, aggression. And she says, when we're feeling aggressive, and in some sense, this would apply to any strong feeling. There's an enormous pregnant quality that pulls us in the direction of wanting to get some resolution. It hurts so much to feel the aggression that we want it to be resolved. <clears throat> I'd say we're not even fully conscious, just uncomfortable, pushing things away not accepting what is. She says, what do we usually do? We do exactly what is going to escalate the aggression and the suffering. We strike out, we hit back. Something hurts our feelings, and initially there is some softness there. If you're fast, you can catch it. But usually you don't even realize there's any softness. You find yourself in the middle of a hot, noisy, pulsating, wanting to just get even with someone state of mind. It has a very hard quality to it. With your words or your actions, in order to escape the pain of aggression, you create more aggression and pain. <clears throat> 
This, this applies, of course, to any adverse feeling, uh, to physical pain. If you're in physical pain, our usual reaction is to clamp up, to wish it would go away, to wonder how long it's going to last, to worry about whether we're going to be hurt. And that is what they call pain on top of pain. And it makes it worse. Uh, one of the wonderful things about the pain of sitting is that it teaches us experientially how that works. And over time, if we persist, we don't quit, we find out a lot about how our reactions color our experience. <clears throat> could also add also that uh, when we see someone else uh, reacting with anger, striking out, uh, I find for myself immediately that brings up a wave of irritation in me. Uh, <laughs> I want to read them the riot act for reading other people the riot act. <clears throat> she says, patience has a lot to do with getting smart at that point and just waiting not speaking or doing anything. On the other hand, it also means being completely and totally honest with yourself about the fact that you're furious. You're not suppressing anything. Patience has nothing to do with suppression. I'll say a little bit more about that. A lot of people, patience does mean that for them. It means I grit my teeth and I don't lash out and I abide with difficulty, whatever I'm having to go through. But patience really is, it is about not striking out. It is about uh, keeping your mouth shut when you're not ready to say anything helpful. But it's also about not trying to manipulate your feelings. Not getting, not jumping out of your immediate experience, the discomfort that you feel and trying to fix it. She says, in fact, it has everything to do with a gentle, honest relationship with yourself. If you wait and don't feed your discursive thought, you can be honest about the fact that you're angry. But at the same time, you can continue to let go of the internal dialogue. It's one thing to feel angry. It's another thing to run through all the reasons why it's justified and map out your <clears throat> possibilities for revenge. But let go she says, continue to let go of the internal dialogue. In that dialogue, you are blaming and criticizing, and then probably feeling guilty and beating yourself up for doing that. Well, if you have a spiritual practice, you may be feeling guilty about it. <clears throat> there are plenty of people who feel absolutely no guilt whatsoever because, in their mind, it's justified anger. <clears throat> Best kind. It's tortuous excuse me, it's torturous <laughs> because you feel bad about being so angry at the same time that you really are extremely angry and you can't drop it. It's painful to experience such awful confusion. Still, you just wait and remain patient with your confusion and the pain that comes with it. Patience has a quality of enormous honesty in it, but it also has a quality of not escalating things allowing a lot of space for the other person to speak, 
for the other person to express themselves while you don't react, even though inside you are reacting. You let the words go and just be there. This suggests the fearlessness that goes with patience. If you practice the kind of patience that leads to the de-escalation of aggression and the cessation of suffering, you will be cultivating enormous courage. You will really get to know anger and how it breeds violent words and actions. You will see the whole thing without acting it out. When you practice patience, you're not repressing anger, you're just sitting it there with it, going cold turkey with aggression. And just to reiterate, same with not repressing fear or pain or craving or any negative feeling, not repressing anxiety. <clears throat> there's a, there's a, a variety of uh, psychotherapy that I've talked about before called ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, um, which uh, purportedly, apparently, experimentally, works very well with anxiety, but a point they make is if you are willing to experience your anxiety in order for it to go away, it will not, will not work. You can't, you can't open and experience anything completely if you have an agenda. That's why people have difficulty opening up to their pain or opening up to their anger, as, as Pema Children is recommending. It's because we want to take that next step. We want that instant gratification of our uncomfortable feelings going away. That's why you need fearlessness, and that's why you need courage. <clears throat> anyway, back to, back to her going cold turkey with the aggression. As a result, you really get to know the energy of anger, and you also get to know where it leads, even without going there. You've expressed your anger so many times, you know where it will lead. The desire to say something mean, to gossip or slander, to complain, just to get, somehow get rid of that aggression is like a tidal wave. I can speak for myself, that feeling, well, one little dig isn't going to hurt. How many times <clears throat> will we make that mistake? She says, you realize that such actions don't get rid of the aggression, they escalate it. Or we could say they feed it. So instead, you're patient. Patient with yourself. Yeah, responding to anger in all those sort of passive-aggressive ways, gossiping about other people or making some little dig, those, those reinforce the pattern and it makes your reactivity a habit. Uh, believe me, for all of us, um, unless you're <clears throat> a very remarkable person, you have that habit. It's what we're working with. Developing patience and fearlessness means learning to sit still with the edginess of the energy. It's like sitting on a wild horse or on a wild tiger that could eat you up. Sitting on your discomfort feels like riding on that tiger because it's so frightening. Now she says something I really like. She says, when we examine this process, we learn something very interesting.
There is no resolution. The resolution that human beings seek comes from a tremendous misunderstanding. We think we can resolve everything. When we human beings feel powerful energy, we tend to be extremely uncomfortable until things are resolved in some kind of secure and comforting way, either on the side of yes or the side of no, or the side of right or the side of wrong, or the side of anything at all that we can hold to. <clears throat> of course, we see this with the lockdown debates, political debates, uh, plays out in our shame on you culture. Move from your anger to condemning someone, and if you totally buy into that, you think you've got some resolution. But of course it isn't. Uh, the poet, the German poet Rilke, Rainer Maria Rilke, said this, Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart, and try to live the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you, because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Stick with direct experience. Don't run off into your thoughts and labels and judgments. She says, <clears throat> the practice we're doing gives us nothing to hold on to. Actually, the teachings themselves give us nothing to hold on to. In working with patience and fearlessness, we learn to be patient with the fact that we are human beings, that everyone who is born and dies from the beginning of time until the end of time is naturally going to want some kind of resolution to this edgy, moody energy, and there isn't any. The only resolution is temporary and causes more suffering. We discover that as a matter of fact, joy and happiness, peace, harmony, and being at home with yourself and your world come from sitting still with the moodiness of the energy until it rises, dwells, and passes away. And of course, everything passes away. She says the energy never resolves itself into something solid. So all the while, we stay in the middle of that energy, the path of touching in on the inherent softness of the genuine heart is to sit still and be patient with that kind of energy. We don't have to criticize ourselves when we fail, even for a moment, because we're just completely typical human beings. The only thing that's unique about us is that we're brave enough to go into these things more deeply and explore beneath our surface reaction of trying to get solid ground under our, our feet. Patience is an enormously wonderful and supportive and even magical practice. It's a way of completely changing the fundamental human habit of trying to resolve things by going either to the right or to the left. And think of that in political terms, I suppose. <clears throat> calling things right or calling things wrong. It's the way to develop courage, the way to find out what life is really about. 
Taoist sage said, good and bad is the disease of the mind. She says, patience is not ignoring. In fact, patience and curiosity go together. You wonder, who am I? Who am I at the level of my neurotic patterns? Who am I at the level beyond birth and death? If you wish to look into the nature of your own being, you need to be inquisitive. The path is a journey of investigation, beginning to look more deeply at what's going on. The teachings give us a lot of suggestions about what we can look for, and the practices give us a lot of suggestions on how to look. Patience is one extremely helpful suggestion. Aggression, or we could say grasping or aversion, on the other hand, prevents us from looking. It puts a tight lid on our curiosity. Aggression is an energy that is determined to resolve the situation into a hard, solid, fixed pattern in which somebody wins and somebody loses. When you begin to investigate, you notice for one thing that wherever there is pain of any kind, the pain of aggression, grieving, loss, irritation, resentment, jealousy, indigestion, physical pain, if you really look into that, you can find out for yourself that behind the pain there is always something we are attached to. There is always something we're holding on to. I say that with such confidence, but you have to find out for yourself whether this is really true. You can read about it. The first thing the Buddha ever taught was the truth that suffering comes from attachment. That's in the books. But when you discover it yourself, it goes a little deeper right away. Anything you discover for yourself goes deeper, goes a lot deeper, because then it's yours, and you know it. It's not just a teaching that you're parroting. the beauty of going into what's actually there, not fighting it out on the level of thoughts, judgments, owning what's ours. She says, as soon as you discover that behind your pain is something you're holding on to, you're at a place that you will frequently experience on the spiritual path. After a while, it seems like almost every moment of your life you're there, at a point where you realize you actually have a choice. You have a choice whether to open or close, whether to hold on or let go, whether to harden or soften. That choice is presented to you again and again and again. For instance, you're feeling pain. You look deeply into it, and you notice that there's something very hard you're holding on to, and then you have a choice. You can let go of it, which basically means you connect with the softness between, behind all that hardness. Perhaps each one of us has made the discovery that behind all the hardness of resistance, stress, aggression, and jealousy, there is enormous softness that we're trying to cover over. We could say vulnerability. We want to protect that softness our problem. Even to accept that this is the way things are feels like it lays us open to the continuation of pain. So we have to learn the hard way by doing it wrong again and again and again 
the way to the relief of suffering is acceptance, is opening, is patience. She says, <clears throat> aggression usually begins when someone hurts our feelings. The first response is very soft, but before we even notice what we're doing, we harden. First response is, oh, that hurts. <clears throat> so we can either let go and connect with that softness, or we can continue to hold on, which means the suffering will continue. <clears throat> when I was uh, just starting in AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, doing the fourth step, which is a, a fearless and moral inventory, uh, the way my sponsor had me do it was to start by listing my resentments and then looking at each one of them and seeing what my part was, what my reaction was. Uh, it's a great way. You uncover almost everything if you look into the things you resent. <clears throat> she says it requires enormous patience. You could also say enormous skill. Even to be curious enough to look, to investigate. And then when you realize you have a choice and that there's actually something there that you're attached to, it requires great patience to keep going into it because you will want to go into denial, to shut down. You're going to say to yourself, I don't want to see this. You'll be afraid because even if you're starting to get close to it, the thought of letting go is usually very frightening. You may feel that you're going to die, that something is going to die, and you will be right. If you let go, something will die, but it's something that needs to die and you will benefit greatly from its death. So many people in Sashin have experienced uh, that moment when thought uh, drops away to a greater or larger degree and all of a sudden there's a fear that comes up with it. Letting go of our thoughts is a huge step, a huge letting go. Because for most of us, they're our protectors. We protect ourselves with our thoughts, with our problem-solving mind. It's frightening to step away from that. And yet, it's such a wonderful place to get to. We can just get past the fear. Um, there's a quotation from a Zen teacher, John Tarrant, uh, studied with Aiken Roshi, Robert Aiken. I won't say anything in particular about him, but uh, he said this. There's a gate in the mind, and stepping through is like leaving the palace that has come to feel like a prison. On the other side of that gate, silence fills the spaces. Nothing is happening but what's happening. There's no urgency. Nothing more is needed than what's here. In that silence and plainness, things step forward and shine by themselves. Although I enjoy seeing this, I don't make it happen. It's not something that can be controlled. Help is unexpected. <clears throat> but I can have faith and I can be silent can be still. <clears throat> Back to Pema Chodron. 
something that needs to die and you will benefit greatly from its death. On the other hand, sometimes it's easy to let go. If you make this journey of looking to see if there's something you're holding on to, often it's going to be just a little thing. Once when I was stuck with something huge, Trungpa Rinpoche gave me some advice. He said, it's too big. You can't let go of it yet, so practice with the little ones. Just start noticing all the little ways you hold when it's actually pretty easy and just get the hang of letting go. She says, and I agree, that was extremely good advice. You don't have to do the big one because usually you can't. It's too threatening. It may even be too harsh to let go right then and there on the spot. But even with small things, you may, perhaps just intellectually, begin to see that letting go can bring a sense of enormous relief, relaxation, and connection with the softness and the tenderness of the genuine heart. True joy comes from that, <clears throat> and we could add, trust comes from that. We begin to trust that letting go. Begin to trust the silence. So when our practice really takes a step forward, not just what we've been told, it's what we've experienced for ourselves. She says, you can also see that holding on increases the pain, but that doesn't mean you're going to be able to let go because there's a lot at stake. What's at stake is your whole sense of who you are, your whole identity. You're beginning to move into the territory of egolessness, the un insubstantial nature of oneself and of everything for that matter. Theoretical, philosophical, distant-sounding teachings can get pretty real when you're beginning to have an inkling of what they're actually talking about. It takes a lot of patience not to beat up on yourself for being a failure at letting go. But if you apply patience to the fact that you can't let go, somehow that helps you do it. Patience with the fact that you can't let go helps you get to the point of letting go gradually at a very sane and loving speed at the speed that your basic wisdom allows you to move. It's a big moment even to get to the point where you realize you have a choice. <clears throat> Patience is what you need at that point to just wait and soften, to sit with the restlessness and edginess and discomfort of the energy. Patience and faith. not looking for quick resolution, not looking for a way out of necessary discomfort. She says, I've come to find that patience has a lot of humor and playfulness in it. It's a misunderstanding to think of it as endurance, as in just grin and bear it. Endurance involves some kind of repression or trying to live up to somebody else's standards of perfection. Instead, you find you have to be pretty patient with what you see as your own perfections. Patience is kind of a synonym for loving-kindness because the speed of loving-kindness can be extremely slow. You're developing patience and loving-kindness for your own imperfections, for your own limitations, for not living up to your own high ideals. There's a slogan someone once came up with that I like. Lower your standards and relax as it is. That's patience. <clears throat> There's something I want to read from Sheng Yen, Japanese teacher. 
saying the same thing in some <clears throat> some different words. Um, this is uh, Sheng Yan is a, a Chan teacher, Chinese teacher who died a few years back. Um, <clears throat> I think a really fine teacher, uh, and this is a, sort of a transcript from a session he gave in Wales that uh, was recorded and translated or <clears throat> put down in words on print. Uh, so he's speaking to the session participants, and uh, this section is called Acting Like a Good-for-Nothing. It says, during the interviews, I've learned that some people are still very tense, still struggling with their meditation method. There are those who may have sat well for a few sessions, but the good feeling has not come back, and they search for it in vain. They feel pressed for time, and their mental states have become more harried, impatient, and tense. I've used many metaphors to explain that if you want to arrive quickly, you'll never get there. But many of you are still making trouble for yourselves, looking for pain to suffer. Buddhist practice is polishing your patience and forging your determination. When you demand peace of mind, your mind is not at peace. To deal with these afflictions, you need to, quote, move the firewood out from under the pot. This means not caring at all, acting as if nothing were happening, feeling that there is no harm in being a good-for-nothing. A lot of hard for people to hear. Feeling that there is no harm in being a good for nothing. The very process of the meditation retreat is itself the result. All you have to do is sit for seven days. If you do it well, that is a result. And if you do it badly, that is also a result. It's all valuable experience. Don't have your heart set on doing well. Just keep your mind on the meditation method. You can say, don't get ahead of yourself. Don't get upset about oblivion or scattered thoughts, pain, numbness, aches, itches. Let it all happen. If the sky falls, pay no attention. I remind you, please do not tense up. If you relax, at least your body can feel good and your mind can feel stable. If you feel tension and urgency, you'll end up with a belly full of anger. One of you sat very well for a stretch and his mind seemed to open. He felt very comfortable and content. After that, with every sitting, he waited for his mind to open again, but it didn't. Anybody had this happen to them? <laughs> when body and mind are relaxed, comfort and ease will appear. When you are tense, hoping that your mind will open, then you will have already closed it tightly. A retreat is not a contest. There is no score and no medals. Our only concern is perfecting the ability to relax and create some spaciousness for our mind. skip ahead a little bit and uh, read from the end of her article just to reinforce 
The path of developing loving kindness and compassion is to be patient with the fact that you're human and that you make these mistakes. That's more important than getting it right. It seems to work only if you're aspiring to give yourself a break, to lighten up as you practice developing patience and other qualities such as generosity, discipline, and insight. That is all the other paramitas, all the other perfections. As with the rest of the teachings, you can't win and you can't lose. You don't get to just say, well, since I'm never able to do it, I'm not going to try. You are never able to do it, and still you try. It's like trying to keep your awareness in the onslaught of daily life. Fail and fail again. How important it is, though, to keep trying, to keep bringing yourself back. It's not how long you stay there. It's the fact how quickly you come back. Come back to awareness. Come back to direct experience. You are never able to do it, and still you try. And interestingly enough, that adds up to something. It adds up to loving kindness for yourself and for others. You look out your eyes and you see yourself wherever you go. You see all these people who are losing it, just like you do. Then you see all these people who catch themselves and give you the gift of fearlessness. You say, oh wow, what a brave one. He or she caught themselves. You begin to appreciate how even the slightest gesture of bravery on the part of others, you begin to appreciate even the slightest gesture of bravery on the part of others because you know it's not easy. And that inspires you tremendously. That's how we can really help each other. It's such an advanced state to be able to take joy and the accomplishments of others. To get out of the competition, to realize that we're all in the same boat. <clears throat> so Pema Children has hogged most of my time. <clears throat> But uh, I do want to say a little bit about the way that patience and zazen reinforce each other. I think a lot of it is clear already, but really patience in our practice is the key to absorption. I'm going to go back to Sheng Yen again and uh, read a little metaphor, analogy. Is it an analogy, a metaphor? I'm not sure. <clears throat> uh, it's from a book called Catching a Feather on a Fan. Again, this is uh, from that Zen retreat. Different book, though. <clears throat> and uh, the analogy is catching a feather on a fan. He says, meditation is like using a fan, the old-fashioned handheld type. You have the task of catching a feather on the fan, and each time you move the fan, the feather is likely to be blown away. It's a delicate business. You have to hold the fan quite still. I want to make sure people understand it's the kind of accordion fan that you can open up and uh, wave it at your face, give yourself a little breeze. So that's the fan. You have to hold the fan quite still, just under the space through which the feather is thinking, sinking of its own motion. The feather then comes to rest on the top of the fan. You can imagine how difficult or how easy this may be. Any use of force and the feather is lost. Yet once you grasp the principle, it is something very easy to do. 
Stilling the mind is just like catching a feather with a fan. It needs patience and persistence. When practicing, do not be afraid of a distracting thought. If your body has a problem, do not be concerned with it. If your mind is worrying, put the worry down. Keep the mind on the method, that is, keep it on your practice, waiting for the feather to sink onto the fan. Supposing you are in a very good situation, no distractions, no wandering thoughts, whatever you do, never congratulate yourself. Away goes the feather at once. So don't be happy. Do not think how successful you are. Just observe the situation without movement towards or away. It means without grasping or pushing away or aversion. If the mind moves, wandering thoughts begin. We have to do this again and again. And blow the fan, the feather away with our greed before we begin to settle, begin to go into that stillness. It's okay. Slow growth is good growth. The essential thing is to keep at it, to keep seeing and keep making the choice, trying to make the choice. <clears throat> we keep being sabotaged by our own impatience, by our greed, our fear. But Zazen itself is an antidote to that impatience. Zazen is cultivating the taste for direct experience to the world beyond thought and ideas. Zazen is learning to open to difficulty, mental and physical. It's not a should. It's not something that we should be doing. And when we begin to develop that patience, it transforms so many situations in our lives. Driving is an obvious example. Can you be stuck in traffic and not give way to anger? Listening. Can you hear somebody tell the same story for the fifth time and just listen? Can you hear somebody stumble around trying to say what, they're, what they can't quite say and refrain from finishing their sentence or jumping to conclusions? Can you tolerate children when they're losing their shit? Can you, can you practice patience in the middle of a disagreement, an argument? Can you begin to savor the sweetness of not having anyone you need to defend. Being able to be dispassionate. Not having a dog in the fight, so to speak. <clears throat> and of course, with any kind of suffering, patience is totally the key. And in our Zazen, to have patience, to have trust, to let it play out as it will.
<clears throat> let me, let me uh, finish with one more uh, quote from Rilke. He talks about being an artist, but <clears throat> we can take this to mean being anybody with a spiritual practice. Being an artist means not numbering and counting, but ripening like a tree which doesn't force its sap and stands confidently in the storms of spring, not afraid that afterward summer may not come. It does come, but it comes only to those who are patient, who are there as if eternity lay before them so unconcernedly silent and vast. I learn it every day of my life, learn it with pain I am grateful for. Patience is everything. <clears throat> we'll stop now and recite the four vows. Thank you.